0: Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I am your host Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast, and with us is our documentary filmmaker all the way in France, Christian Taylor.
1: Hey, Josh, how are you? Great, Christian, how are you? I'm hanging in there. It can't be bad when you're in France, especially when you're in Normandy. So I'm not complaining. I, how long you been there? Or how long you been out of? How long you been in France? So I've been here since June second. So we're at 18 days, I guess, today recording on June 20th, and I will leave on June 24th and head back home. So
0: there's a lot to cover. Yeah. I think we should just dive right in. Uh, it has been, well, let's let's go back to mid-May, shall we, and pick up, because even before France, there was a lot going on. Uh, you had a screening screening in D.C. with Airbus. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about that, but, um, to just reiterate, thanks to Virginie uh, who is from Normandy and she works for Delta. Um, she saw the film and was so incredibly passionate about that. She sort of opened up tons of doors for us. Um, and this is one of them. So she initially brought us to Delta, um, back last fall and we did you know, an event at Delta for all of the employees. Uh, Then she, um, during that time, one of the employees was a woman named Shalini um, Pasellas, and she works, um, her account is the Airbus account at Delta. And she works very closely with Airbus, and they are located in the Washington, D.C. area. And so they wanted to have a screening of the film in that area and show their employees. So um, they. Delta flew us to DC, and we did our thing at the Air and Space Museum in Virginia, which is the Udvar-Hazy location of the Air and Space Museum. And, you know, it wasn't um, hugely attended, but it was amazing to see it on this giant IMAX screen. And the people that were there were incredibly passionate about being there. We had three cast members there, David Chapman and... um, Teresa Warner and James Martin, who play the nurse and the sailor in the very beginning of our film. And they're also at the end. So they were there. And there were veterans organizations that were also there to see the film. So I feel like we made some really great connections and we had a wonderful event. So yeah, that was, I think, May 12th. Gosh, that just feels like forever ago, but it was only like six weeks ago.
0: So Airbus is obviously or, 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 or it's
1: not obvious to me. Is it is it in airlines or do they make Airbus? They make they make it's like a company like Boeing. Um okay. so and Delta flies Airbus planes. So oh. their Airbus 320s, they're I don't know, know all the numbers, but I know Airbus 320 is one that is flown domestically a lot. There's Airbus 350s, which are the new big huge ones that fly you know, long distance internationally. Um, yeah, so they make the airplanes that airlines fly.
0: So did, did you get, have you had you ever been to the Air and Space Museum before?
1: I had been there before. Um, okay. There are, like I said, two locations. The main Air and Space Museum is on the Washington Mall. And this, there were so many things that they um, just were not being able to include in that limited space. So they opened this Udvar-Hazy location and it's in Reston, Virginia. Thereabouts, and it's just this really huge um, air hanger type, you know, museum. Have you been there?
0: No, I have not.
1: It's it's phenomenal. Highly recommend going there.
0: All right. So you had a successful screening there, saw it on IMAX, and then you headed to New York. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So then on May 16th, we went to um, New York. um, And again, this was something that Delta was sponsoring. So Virginie Durr was there, Delta sponsored the um, pre-screening reception. Uh, The relationships had been made with the French Institute slash Alliance Francaise, which is located in Manhattan. They really are, have a huge presence in New York. They, um, it is like a French school and they have lots of kids that attend there and they, um, it's a French association. So they have an arts department of this, uh, French Institute, Alliance Francaise, and they bring in films regularly. So they have a big, beautiful theater and they hosted a Q and a and, um, air France. So the film was brought onto air France, um, may 1st, and then air France agreed to fly Danny and Flo from, Normandy to New York. So I met Danny and Flo there and Virginie Durr there. And we um, also met up with the Michelin team, David Chapman and some of his crew, and Donnie Edwards and the Best Defense Foundation. So that was kind of the the, the kickoff for the team, um, before all the D-Day events. And that was a phenomenal screening. My favorite thing about that screening is Danny was able to talk a lot, uh, during that screening because she could speak in French and there was a great translator for her and there wasn't really a short time limit. So she was able to really share and talk. And I really love that. So, um, So, yeah, we made some other great connections there. And one thing that I was super excited about is that uh, the Institute wanted to show the film again to a group of school children. So um, and they were supposed to do that. uh, I think that was on the 15th. They were supposed to show that. And then the school kids came down with COVID. And so it had to be postponed. So that was a bummer. But I hope we'll do that again in the fall because I would love for those kids to be able to see the film. So we, again, good connections made and it was a great screening, good Q&A. And and then from that screening, we spent a few days in New York with Danny and Flo and I got to uh, take them all over New York. That was super fun. Uh, And, you know, we did some crazy things like the ride in New York City. Have you ever done the ride? No. So the ride is like this gigantic bus and inside the bus, it's stadium seating. So like you're in a theater and the side of the bus is all glass. And so you're sitting in a theater, but New York is the stage. And so you can see out the bus as you drive through Manhattan and the people in New York can see you. So you're sort of like on their stage. And the bus has speakers on the insides and the outsides, and then surprising things happen with people on the street as you go through uh, the town. Musicals break out, you know, you just never know what to expect, but you get a good taste of New York City as well as a lot of the history of the town. So uh, they love that. They love that. And um, they were kind of, of course, celebrities. Um, I had gotten some VIP tickets and told them who they were. And so the ride made a big deal about Danny and Flo being there. So that was super fun. That's awesome.
0: Okay. So we've been in D.C., New York, and then you headed down to Columbus, Georgia, uh, Fort Benning.
1: Yeah, we were actually in Atlanta we were based in Atlanta. Delta brought us there for kind of the other um, upcoming events. And while we were there, um, the National um, Infantry Foundation wanted to, us to come and do a screening there. So that's in Columbus, which is about an hour and a half away. And they brought us in for a screening. And again, it was another big, beautiful theater. Not a lot of people came, unfortunately, it was raining, it was COVID, you know, there's all sorts of challenges that way. Um, But the people that really made a difference for our film happened to be there. And so a lot of the people in the education department of the National Infantry Museum came and they saw the film and really believe in its message. And so they belong to a group, a museum group, up and down the East Coast. And they really wanna carry our film in the museum sort of as a standard offering, and they want those other museums to do it as well. So if we can work that deal out, that would be super for The Girl Who Wore Freedom. Would that be uh, income generating? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I have to say, Ah, uh, they paid us thirteen hundred dollars for that screening, even though a lot of people didn't come uh, because the woman that brought us in, Tiffany Hoffman really believed in in what we're doing. and she raised the money through a grant or something to put towards this screening. um and that was that was huge. It was very timely. They paid on time, and they're willing to help <laughs> us. Uh, so, yeah. So that was that was just beautiful. I was so thankful for that and we then spent Memorial Day. They invited us back to do Memorial Day at Fort Benning. It was very moving for me because they have all of the names of the men who died um you know in combat on a um, memorial walls there and I was able to locate the five names of the five friends that Hunter lost in Afghanistan. So really? it made um Memorial Day particularly meaningful for me to be able to see the names of his friends and make sure that they were not forgotten. Um yeah, it was a beautiful beautiful Memorial Day there and we got a tour of Fort Benning uh where the initial airborne school was. So they still have the airborne uh parachute towers that the original airborne guys practice from. So basically they're giant towers and the parachute, you know, inflate from up above and they just drop them down onto the ground. And, um, so it's hasn't changed since the forties. So that was cool. And they love that. Uh, so yeah. And then we went back to Atlanta and we, uh, Virginia Durr's son got married. So we got a wedding thrown in the mix, which was fun. You you went to the wedding. (laughs) We went to the wedding of her son. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we had a big wedding party. Um, and then, uh, shortly after that, It's when we, you know, the big D-Day event began with our dinner in the Delta Museum with the, you know, 29 World War II veterans, employees and volunteers from the Best Defense Foundation, from Michelin. Um, A thing that sticks in my mind, I will never, ever lose it is that night, they had a 40s jazz swing band playing. And there were several veterans that got up and just wanted to dance. And it was like, they were young again. And, you know, Danny wanted to dance with them. And, you know, so I just have these beautiful images in my mind of Danny and these veterans dancing like it's 1944. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. And it was beautiful just to see, um, how much people had come together. Amazon was also a sponsor of a lunch. We did the next day, they gave all of the veterans iPads or I'm sorry, sorry, Amazon fires. I don't know how they are going to work them, but (laughs) that was a, a lovely, nice gesture. And we did make contact with the Amazon team and they were seriously interested in us showing the film to all of their veterans groups. So that was a lovely contact for us to make hopefully um, so wait, they Amazon has veteran groups? Yeah, like all of these big corporations, they all have business resource groups. Um, this is something that I've learned as I've gone through, you know, these corporate events. Every big corporation now has a you know, a a resource group, and they really are striving for diversity. So they have diversity and inclusion groups as well, segments of their companies, and veterans are included in this diversity and inclusion umbrella. Um, So inside the diversity and inclusion umbrella, you have a group, you know, that supports gays and lesbians, you have a group that supports uh, the, you know, African Americans, you have, and they're really talking about all of these issues that are pertinent to employees that belong in these different groups. They're trying to um, bring knowledge and awareness to everyone in these companies about about different people. So veterans are just one of those groups. And so that is kind of where our project fits in. Um, A company that has a diversity and inclusion section will sort of take ownership of doing an event for veterans that focuses on veterans um and that's how it's been done at l'oreal at michelin at delta it's always through their veteran business resource group
0: but unlike l'oreal amazon actually has films yeah yeah so
1: So that's what I told the contact that I met. I said, you know, we'd love to do an event. Do you think that could be a doorway into, um, you know, being on Amazon Prime? And he said, well, the first thing is getting, you know, creating this big event, getting all of our employees to see it. Um, And, you know, that that would be huge in itself, just if the employees could see it. I mean, they have employees all over the world and veteran employees all over the world. So, you know, it's a start. It's one little... Well, what What's, I mean, is there, is that in the works?
0: What, what's next step for, to do the event?
1: Well, the next step was for them to watch the movie, because even though they, um, they saw me, they talked to me, they had not yet. And they talked to Danny and they heard all about the film. They hadn't yet watched the film. So oh. I did send them a link. I know they clicked on the link. I'll have to see if they watched it. Um, and then the next step would be to, you know, to begin to put an event together and see, you know, see what happens. That's cool. Yeah.
0: So you're in Atlanta, living it up, having a good time, and then uh, you get shipped off to France. Is that the next step?
1: Yeah, that is the next step. Um, I think the morning of June 1st, um, we had a big event at the Delta Museum, which if you've never, I mean, it doesn't sound like a cool thing to go to a Delta Museum. Like I'm sure a lot of people would not have thought about that, but it was so Cool. It was so 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 cool, because in this museum you see all of these different old airlines or airplanes and just different things from the air industry from the past. And I mean, of course, I love history, but a lot of it I remembered, you know, I mean, I think initially, um, I'm not sure if they were Pan Am or not, but I remember seeing some Pan Am stuff there. But I mean, I remember seeing like, there's this one airplane that showed the like stewardess's section where they make the meals and they have like the little dishes that you used and I'm like oh my gosh I remember those dishes from when I was a kid and it goes through and you see all the airline attendants uniforms from you know the 60s or whatever and I remembered you know over half of them and so it was the same way I felt when I went to Graceland and saw Elvis's airplane you know you kind of step back into the 70s and it's like you remembered airline travel back then so So I enjoyed that. That was a beautiful event where that that next morning we were with the veterans and it was a autograph signing event for all of the employees. And so we had a table where people would come and meet Danny and she would sign autographs and explain the dress. And that was beautiful to see. And then that afternoon we kind of rested, packed up and we headed to the airport. And so our plane left at nine and we got to the gate and there were just a huge reception of people with banners and balloons and um everybody just hollering and cheering and i think one of the things that was so fun was that the you know the destination thing you know typically when you go there it's like you know chicago you know leaves at 9 p.m or whatever this one was like you're flying to normandy and it just said Normandy on the banner. And I think there are planes that land in Normandy and that land in Caen, for example. But um this one went was a one-stop from Atlanta to Deauville, non-stop, right into this tiny little regional airport in Deauville, France. And so when we got on the plane, Delta was so kind that gave all of the veterans, of course, first class seating, but oh. they were, I I thought. You know we'd be back in the steerage or whatever but they put danny flo and i in the um, next section which was like the premier seating and a little bit more space and um just super kind but it gave me the ability to watch the best defense foundation take care of the veterans throughout the entire flight and i was just really blown away they took turns and shifts taking care of the veterans who struggled to understand how to move their seats or turn on their monitors or uh, turn off their monitors or uh, their legs were, you know, they needed to walk or get up and go to the bathroom. And uh, they were just super um, incredibly attentive to all of the veterans. And I loved seeing that. And they got them all ready for when we landed the next day and we landed in this little airport. Um, And when we landed, I think the pilots had a French flag out one window, an American flag out the other. And we kind of, um, flew into the, or landed on the runway. And as we got closer to the gate, uh, we got a water cannon by the fire engines, you know, that were, we got it when we left to in New York, and then we got it when we arrived. So the veterans love that they could see out the window and see those water cannon salute, as they call it. And then when we pulled up, um, we got out on the tarmac, and there were just kids everywhere singing and cheering. There was an army band. The U.S. ambassador to France was there to greet all of the veterans. Our cast members were there, Marie Pascal Legrand and Charles Shea, and David Chapman was there to meet the plane. Um, And then they announced all the veterans as they came off the plane, Uh, and Annie too, when she came off the plane. So it was just big spectacle and we went from there into an air hangar where they had everything set up, a huge reception with food and champagne and um new Normandy cider, all of that. And the regional people got to speak a little bit, Virginie Durr got to speak a little bit. And my favorite moment was at the end where a veteran stood up and said, You know what? These events are for the veterans, so I think a veteran should speak. And uh he got up and talked about how he felt about being there and felt about the people in Normandy and uh, talked about his experience there. So, uh, so it was fantastic. That was how we arrived in Normandy on June 2nd. That's awesome.
0: So now you're in France and uh, you have more screenings. So the first one was in Carleton?
1: Yeah. yeah, we went straight from the airport and drove straight to the town of Carleton and had our first screening at 7 p.m. And we were graced with the presence of Bob Weber, who is one of our World War II veterans That's sort of at the end of our film, I hadn't seen him in since we filmed him in 2018 in Holland, Michigan. Uh, since then, unfortunately, his wife passed away recently. Um, so that was heartbreaking to hear. Uh, but he was able to come and be part of being in Normandy for another time. Uh, And I think he's 98 now. Um, He used to be a history teacher in Chicago and after the war. So it was just a delight to see him. And he really enjoyed the film and enjoyed being there with the French people. So, yeah. So that was our our first screening. And then the next morning, found us on Purple Heart Lane, uh, bright and early. And um, I was super excited to see Thomas Boisson there, our friend, um, and cast member from the Girly War Freedom, he was in charge of a presentation about the Battle of Carentan on Purple Heart Lane. And he had asked me to record the English version at home. So before I came, I recorded the story of the Battle of Carentan from my studio. But when I arrived, there was playing on the speakers on the road. Uh, so that was fun. And Um, I got to be interviewed for the girl who wore freedom, which was very nice of them. We got to talk about the screenings and then, and then Tom Rice, our veteran from grueling glory showed up, which was super cool. Um, he flew with us on the plane. So I was glad to see him. And my son, Jonah, who was there in uniform from Germany, got to meet him. And there's a phenomenal picture, uh, that we will share of Tom Rice and Jonah. So that was a super, super fun, fun morning. Oh, absolutely. And then you got to work. Yes. Well, yeah, we did, we did like D-Day events on three, four, five, and six. Okay. And then we got to work.
0: All right. So lots of screenings, D-Day events, being interviewed. uh, But you were there to, to film. So, so remind everyone, what, what are you filming? And, and, uh, Remind me, how are you doing this without any money? So go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great question. Um, yeah, so we've been working on this documentary about the town of Caronton. And, you know, we've been working on it conceptually now since the fall. Um, we had meetings over in um in October when I was here with the town of Caron when we presented the idea to them. And then Zach. Callahan, our writer, um, sort of switched from the Brave Dutch. So we'd had all of our energies going towards the Brave Dutch, trying to get our pitch documents done, trying to write the story. Um, And you'll remember we sent those documents to Virgil Films. They made the ask for all the streaming services, and we were turned down for funding for those things. And we were also told we really needed a sizzle reel. So when all of that was, you know, on pause, I realized, you know, hey, we're going to be in Normandy. We sh- should try to to film something if we can. And seriously, I was going to just film whatever I could film on my iPhone. Um, but I mentioned that to our team, Mindy Cook and um, Zach Callahan, Sam King and stuff like that. And we talked about what it would look like if we came to film some things initially for our sizzle reel so that we could then pitch it and try to raise money to make this documentary. Um, And Mindy did an amazing job of sort of sussing out what that would cost us and what equipment that we would need to do, you know, use if we did it on a, you know, something better than my iPhone. Um, And we and Zach began writing an outline for um, what this documentary might look like. And we really were researching characters and storylines and um, and then, then we met Chad Gilchrist and Chad is now a Patreon supporter and a podcast listener. And I went and met with them and just to get to know him and say, thank you for supporting. And, uh, turns out shortly after that, the cinematographer that we wanted to hire, wasn't able to go. And so I was like, wow, I wonder if Chad could go and Chad thought about it and talk to his fiance about it. They're about to get married on June 25th, uh, and they decided to, to jump on board. And that was a real game changer. It was a game changer for equipment. It was a game changer for experience because Chad, um, his day job is really grip and electric. He's worked in that department for a long time and has a huge resume on IMDB. And um, but his gifting and his desire is to be a DP. And he's good at that. And so uh, this was an opportunity for him to get some really great footage for his reel and increase his skills. And um, And his fiance, Taylor, is, a, um, is an amazing producer. So she was willing to also jump on board. They could do this together and it could be great experience for her. And so when our team kind of built out a little bit more um, and also we had a donor that gave us some money to cover a lot of the equipment costs. Um, So, so really we had all that we needed and we really were only going to be shooting for four days. Uh, and so I figured, well, let's try to get something done. So that's what we did June seven, eight, nine, and 10. Okay. And then what are you going
0: to and go back? And so now that you have this footage, uh, what do you do with it now like who, who's going to work yeah. on it where, where are you going to show it you know like.
1: great question well um i had a meeting today with the town of Carenton, and i was so so excited about this meeting um i'll have to say what was interesting for me is that you know i said i've always wanted a do-over after the girl who wore freedom and i wanted to do over to kind of do things differently and this was my opportunity to do things differently and We did do things differently and there were a lot of successes and there were mistakes I made last time that I did not make this time. Uh, But I will tell you, Josh, that does not mean that there were not problems. There were absolutely problems and challenges and unforeseeable things I did not know were going to happen. And, you know, it reminded me of when you are, don't have kids, And you think about having kids and you see other parents with their kids, you say, I'm never going to be like that parent, or I'm not going to do it this way, or I'm not going to make this mistake. I'm going to do it like this. And my kids are going to turn out perfectly is what's implied. You know, if I do it this way, that it's going to be perfect. And you know, that's not true. Like you just, you know, that's not true. You can think you're going to do that, but. You know, that's not what happens. So that's kind of what happened in the situation. So there were a lot of really tough, really hard things that happened during those four days. Um, But I was able to meet with the city today and told them sort of like our plan and the story and what we've been working on and what we did in the four days filming and kind of what we're missing, what we're gonna need next. They were super supportive and really behind the project. And so that made me really happy. Um, there were things that we were not able to get this time, so we're going to have to find a way to get those um, a different way in order to make the sizzle reel. The plan was for um, us to have a person to do DIT while the shoot was going on, meaning, um, you know, you film on the camera on cards, you film sound on cards, you dump all the footage onto uh, drives and you have somebody managing all of this media. Um, and you know, in a perfect world, they're making proxies and things like that for you as you go along. So you can watch, um, you know, some of the footage during the day, we, um, our good friend, Sam King, who we love and adore and who was supposed to be on this project with us, unfortunately got to the airport and his passport was expired, which he will tell you was a very bad mistake. Thank goodness. Uh, rookie mistake, uh, one he will never make again, I'm sure. Um, it was hard for him and it was hard for us uh, because he was supposed to handle a lot of that, um, you know, media management and PA work. And so I my heart was broken for him. He'd been wanting to do this for a really long time. And so that was heartbreaking. Um, so what that meant was um, Mindy Cook, who was one of our camera ops and um, Chad Gilchrist were managing that media predominantly Mindy. Thank you, Mindy, uh, for that. She did a lot of the dumping and the copying and copying of drives so that we had two different drives and um, and that, that takes a lot. So um, I'm very, very grateful for uh, Mindy doing that. She took um, 10 terabytes of footage home and now is in the process of getting those to bill Ebel, who was supposed to be editing us and we're still all working on the sweat equity mode um because we know we don't have any money right now and we need to do this in order to get some money um but i got a message from bill today that he's gotten booked on two movies And he may not have time to help us right now. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Another curveball thrown my way. So um, I started trying to scramble and figure out, okay, well, what can I do in the meantime uh, so we don't waste time? And um, I kind of went back to Mindy and said, you know, do you think you could separate all these interviews out for me? Because we did them all in French. And so it means we're going to have to transcribe them, then translate them so that I can read them. So Zach and I can put them into a a script to do the sizzle reel. So we can be working on that. Um, And then, yeah, well, I'll figure out what we have to do, but um, it's kind of all not clear yet. I haven't seen all the footage. I've seen some of the reenactment footage. I've seen what the um, interviews looked like. Things look great. Things sound great. Um, So it'll be you know, interesting to see when I read the answers, do I have, you know, what am I missing? What pieces am I missing in order to make this sizzle real, one of the things that didn't go as planned is that Tom rice was, um, Tom rice was in the battle of Carentan. He was, um, he jumped around La Barquette. That was one of his D-Day objectives. He was under um, Colonel Johnson and we, filmed right around where his story was. And so I was really hoping to interview him here while we were here in Normandy, and that that did not happen. Um, I did get a chance to talk with Flo Plana, who has interviewed him before, and who is willing to help us as a historical consultant and also let us um, license some of that interview footage. Uh, so since we've done some reenactments around where Tom landed and fought, and since we can use that footage, um, now I know I'm missing a piece of talking to a Carantan survivor who can kind of testify to the events on the ground. So got some work ahead of me.
0: Earlier, you made, you made reference to making, uh, I forget exactly what you said, but big mistakes or something. Yeah. Can you uh, share <laughs> one of
1: them with us? I can. Um, I sort of made this mistake the first time around. Um, I thought that I had not made it the second time around, but retrospectively, uh, I can see that I made the same mistake twice. And that was, I had um, relied on one or two people um, to make schedules, get permissions, um, and make sure that all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed in terms of, location permissions, and uh, shooting schedules and things like that. And previously, Flo Boucherie had done that on The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And she is an administrative guru. And she really is great at schedules and permissions and using lists and making sure everything is checked off. And I she's very busy and has a lot going on in her schedule. And so um, I thought that these other people could help us with that. Um, And there was a communication breakdown. I don't think that they understood that's what I was expecting. Um, And so we had trouble with the logistics and permissions and schedules. Um, And that was very challenging. Um, So an example of that is that We were, I was, we got permission from a few of the towns to shoot there. I assumed that meant all of the, um, you know, authorities are notified and they would know we would be there and we'd be allowed to be there. But on this one road, on this one day, there was a woman that wanted to pass by and she was very angry that we were in her way. So she went out the other way and called the mayor of Saint Comte du Mont. And uh, the mayor showed up to find out what we were doing. And fortunately for us, Denis Vandenbrink was on set that day directing the reenactment and the mayor was friends with Denis. And so we were allowed to shoot. Uh, and that was, you know, we sort of got by by the skin of our teeth on that one. But that's just a small example. And there were more, but that <laughs> was just one of them. What's well, that's just life, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that um, that was hard for me is that there were things that were outside of our control and there were things that were in our control. And so one of the things that was outside our control is that our person in charge of reenactors did their job. They planned it out. We planned out our reenactment scenes. We knew the groups, the groups that we were working with. Um, And everybody had committed to do that, but nobody had actually really spoken with Taylor Banowski, our producer. And so it was really, we were going through this one person um, and that one person assured us everything was fine. All of the people would be there. We didn't need to worry about it and be so strict about it. I know that that is the way that things go in Normandy. So I wasn't really stressed about it. I trusted this person. They're like, don't worry about it. I've got it in hand, it's gonna be fine. Um, So I did, I trusted the person. Um, And the problem was that there was a lot of rain during the D-Day commemorations. And so the reenactors that were here got soaked, their stuff got soaked, and they didn't want to be here any extra days to film this thing that they were not getting paid for. So basically all of the groups that committed to working with us packed up their stuff and left. So we were supposed to have like 60 reenactors that were going to help us over the course of two days. And we ended up only having eight. Oh, wow. So that was a problem. That was a problem because the same eight reenactors, you know, we can't, we may have to come back to film more reenactments for the real thing because we can't show the same faces over and over again. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So that was a problem. Um, and then the one thing that was completely outside our control um and we'll have, like, I really, I I didn't want to give all this away cause I wanted, we're gonna have Chad and Taylor come on and we're gonna have Mindy Cook come on and other people on the, Zach Callahan come on, just different people that were on this shoot to kind of give their perspective. But um, one of the things that was the most challenging was um, we were shooting at a like canal in downtown Carenton at the Bailey bridge um, near the locks. And we were shooting a scene with only about five of the reenactors. So three of them were just kind of standing around. And at one point when we were filming, I hear Thomas saying, the police are here. (laughs) You have to come, Taylor. And so I watched Taylor and um, Thomas Boisson run to meet the police. Well, so we're finishing shooting this reenactment scene. And as we're finishing, we're getting back to where our cars are parked and the gendarmerie are still there. And so I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? Well, as it turns out, there is a rule in Normandy that you cannot wear an SS uniform. Actually, it's not just in Normandy. It's all over France. And one of our reenactors, who happens to be a gendarme, wanted to have himself photographed on the Bailey Bridge in an SS uniform. And a gendarme mm. just happened to walk by. Mm. Not so good for yeah. our project. So that created a whole hubbub. and, um, you know, a big mess. Why didn't we notify the gendarme? Oh, we thought we did because we told the mayor's office and we got permission. It was just, and it was, you know, probably two hours lost of shooting. and then, you know, made us feel like all of our other permissions and paperworks and things like that weren't done. That's when we kind of realized, oh, we thought all the cities that we had gotten permissions from were on notice that we were going to be filming. And, um, we didn't know we had to contact the gendarmerie because we never did that before. And yeah, so that was an exciting adventure and that had nothing to do with us, but it actually, you know, we had to speak to the mayor's office and the gendarme gendarmes office about, you know, that this was just a reenactor and it wasn't really our crew or our team. So, just another one of the crazy things that happens in Normandy, I suppose.
0: Right, right. Can't really necessarily plan for it. So
1: no, not that one. Fortunately, right. I did have someone on my team that, you know, helped us write an apology letter. And, um, you know, we kind of got things squared away. We ended up getting what we needed to film and no one got arrested and no one got fined, which really is a miracle. And it was probably only because the guy was a John Domery himself. But you would have thought he would have known better.
0: Yeah. <laughs> interesting okay yeah well all right so you're getting sizzle, sizzle reel footage uh you're trying to find people to put this together for you but they're busy doing other projects yeah. so you're still working on that yeah. um uh, on a last note here uh what does it look like in terms of raising money cuz the purpose of the sizzle reel is to find an investor is that right
1: yeah yeah and you know i'm i'm talking with, um, one of my business consultants right now about the best way to raise money. There's several avenues. I mean, one of them is we do the sizzle reel. We make the little, um, you know, the pitch deck and we give it to Virgil films and they take it to the streaming services and try to get upfront money. That's Avenue one. Um, if we do that, then they control what happens with the property and, you know, but then has distribution, avenue two is that we go the investment route we look for investors to uh, to come on board or um or you know we continue looking for donations um and the other one is doing looking for grants in the u.s and grants in france i mean it's basically the same way you always look for funding for movies um so that's the next step now correct me if i'm wrong you, you said you were not going
0: to start filming until you had the money this time. Is that still the case? Oh yeah. That's
1: definitely the case. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Just, I mean, just, you know, this sick. could be the end of the line. We could get this, you know, sizzle reel done and right. we don't find the money. And I mean, that's going to be true for the brave Dutch. You know, if um, I still need a sizzle reel for the brave Dutch and we've got to figure out how to retool the brave Dutch. Um, are we going to, are we going to try to, Keep it a series and raise money to do the series. Um, we've been told it needs to be a narrative film. Are we going to rethink it and do a narrative film? Um, you know, where are we going to find the money to do that? I don't know. But it looks like that's probably going to be the next six months to a year of my work is trying to figure out um, the funding for these two projects. Could be well, more. My guess is it's going to be more.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, but better to have that mindset. and.
1: Or, you know, I could win the lottery and fund it all myself. I hey,
0: know. who knows? Who knows. It could happen. But you got to play to win, Christian. You got to play that's to win. That's true. Yourself. And I
1: don't play. So that's probably not going right. to happen. Don't have any rich relatives. So that's not going to happen. <laughs> all right. Well, Hey, that's, that's
0: quite a whirlwind. Um, I'm glad we got everyone caught up and uh, again as of the recording this is on a monday you're flying home on a friday so next time we record you'll be back in the united states
1: yeah yeah
0: I'm very happy to be home that.
1: miss my husband and my kids and
0: absolutely yeah well should we uh shift gears and yes. uh go to our our other segment it's uh we like to say it's now time for DocuView Docu yeah, deja view yeah good job josh <laughs> <laughs> Still didn't feel right, but whatever. <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and go first. I have a film from let's see 1999, okay, a documentary called American Movie.
1: Ever Ooh, I this? never heard of this one.
0: <laughs> you have to check this out because okay. I'll read the tagline uh, documentary about an aspiring filmmaker's attempt. To finance his dream project by finally completing the low budget of horror film he abandoned years before. So uh this this guy he he wants to make a movie, he wants to make a horror film. And so, so, so I don't know how they got connected to this guy, but he's he's in just middle of nowhere America. He has no money, he seems to have no idea no idea what he's doing <laughs> when it comes to anything. But he He's not afraid to go for it, and he he finds someone to finance his film, which is just some poor old guy living in a trailer park who's probably living off of his, you know, veteran's pension or something, and and he gives him some money, and and uh, he tries to get you know, like for example, like he had uh, a, a scene I think where he needed a bunch of extras to show up, and I think they're expecting like ten or something like that, and one guy, like his best friend, showed up, and so. It, it's just a, I think it's a sweet film. It's a heartbreaking film in terms of just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy's doing this. I, I feel like there's a backstory where, like, his, it's one of those, uh, once the documentary came out, there was a cult following of the film that he made, which is not any good, but it just, it's <laughs> people are familiar with the actors and the filmmakers. And so it's fun to watch. But
1: what is the film, you know, the horror film he made? Uh, it's called. <laughs> Coven,
0: no no, coven. It's called Coven. And there's a funny scene where someone's telling him, like, well, it's not pronounced, it's called Coven. It's pronounced Coven. He's like, Well, that sounds like oven. So we can't say that. So we gotta call it Coven, which is not a word, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) He just didn't want to call it the right way because it rhymed with oven. So, but anyway, uh American movie. Uh, I'm not just look it up on actually. Here's a good tip: there's a website called Just Watch. Dot com Just watch.com, and you can type in the name of your movie and it'll tell you where you can stream it.
1: Oh, I love that. I'm glad somebody finally came up with that. That's great. Yeah. Well, so what made you watch this movie?
0: Uh, a friend saw it and recommended it.
1: Okay.
0: Um, this, is, this is in the 90s. So I was in college and I think you're watching, see, 99. So oh, I think I was in the film school actually. So yeah, I probably came across it around. Film school era, pre Veggie Tales, right around there. You're just watching a lot of artsy out there kind of stuff.
1: That reminds me of something that happened on our shoot. Remember, we were supposed to have 60 reenactors, and we ended up having eight. And the right. first scene that we were f- supposed to film was between the Fallschirmjäger, which are the German paratroopers that sort of landed in the area and the American GIs of the 101st. And there's like, I don't know, 500, 600, it's supposed to be 500, 600 Fallschirmjäger and you know, 150 or something American GIs. And, or maybe it's more than that. I forget my, getting my scenes confused, but uh anyway, we have eight guys. Eight guys to play both roles. <laughs> to play both roles, eight guys. Uh fortunately, they did have both uniforms. Um but Chad Gilchrist, and I can't wait to have him on to talk about this, came up with the brilliant idea sort of on the spot of, you know, we are going to layer these guys. So we had them all walking in you know, rows like eight times. So that we could layer them visually all over each other, um, and so that was that was one um, way that Chad compensated for having hardly anyone. Um, and you know, it was it was pretty creative. Like you got to think on your feet. So I give him a lot of props for coming up with that. But yeah, having one of your friends show up to be a, you know, an extra on the set. I I feel him. <laughs> well, the the funny
0: thing too about this guy was when you meet him, you find out they're, you know, they're friends. And they, he said, you know, we partied a lot in high school and meaning they did drugs. And they said, no, we don't do it anymore. But it's it's just hysterical because his best friend is just a clueless, clearly affected by the drugs he took years ago, dude, <laughs> who's just willing to help out his best friend and the best friend just, he just rolls with it, right? You know, it, it it's, it's sweet and hysterical and a little sad, I guess, but still a wonderful film. So
1: I'm going to have to check it out. American All right. Well, movie. my recommendation on DocuView Deja Vu is um, something that I just learned about on this trip. Actually, Mindy Cook gave me this recommendation where we were talking about, you know, series that we like to watch. So it's not a documentary movie. It's a documentary series. Uh, you may have seen this. I don't know, but it's somebody feed Phil. Have you seen this?
0: Uh, Sorry, I got stuck on mute. Uh, Yes, we are a huge fan of Somebody Feed Phil, our whole family.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'd never seen or even heard about Somebody Feed Phil. Um, But Somebody Feed Film is a documentary travel series. Um, It's directed by John Bedellis. I don't know who that is. Um, Presented by Philip Rosenthal. And they've got five seasons. Do you know who these people are?
0: Well, I know who Phil Rosenthal is. He's uh, the creator, writer of Uh, Everybody loves Raymond.
1: Oh, that's right. I did hear this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so this premiered on Netflix in 2018. uh, And I think the fifth season was released this May and it's been renewed for a sixth season. So um, I watched the beginning episodes, just I've I've watched two of them. One of them was in Thailand and the other one was in Venice. So um, those episodes. And really, I think it's just his childlike wonder. Phil is just like a a little kid. I mean, why, you've seen more of them than I have, Josh. So tell me why you like it. So
0: uh, first of all, Phil Rosenthal is just a great guy. Like you, he's just a fun, likable person. He's always positive. There really isn't, you know, much to the show other than him meeting with friends and trying foods and loving everything he tries, uh, and he's silly throughout it. So uh there isn't a whole it doesn't like getting like a lot of education i mean he tells you where you are and he, he introduces you to different foods but it, it, it's it's lighthearted it's not heavy or deep in education or things like that so so it's it's funny uh it is inspiring it does make you want to go to these places try these foods and at the end of every episode he does a zoom call with his parents yeah or this older jewish couple who are hysterical and they either have trouble with the zoom or they don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. And, and I, I think, I think this is Phil's the guy who said he grew up on like just meat and potatoes and just had, you know, and then he, you know, grew up and traveled the world and experienced, you know, it's just his eyes and mouth were open to all these wonderful things available to us. And so he's kind of like introducing his folks to what's out there. And, and it's, that's one of the best parts is him talking to his parents at the end of the of each yeah. episode.
1: For sure. I I love that part. And, you know, I don't know if it changes over the course of the five seasons. You know, the production value in the first season for me didn't seem very high. Like no. it really was this guy just going around with his friends and his brother, who's, you know, a producer and I don't know, stumbling through life or this experience. I mean, does it get any better over time in terms of cinematically oh, or writing-wise? Yeah yeah, or- yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely gets better. Um, you know, I'm actually That's why we need Jason. Um, I'm trying to find, because it wasn't always called Somebody Feed Phil. It had a different name. Okay. They had to to change it so that, um, so they could have the rights to the show or or, or something like that. I don't remember exactly, but the the production value does get better. I will mention that my favorite band, Lake Street Dive uh, does the opening song that they wrote for the show. So it's a fun, fun song.
1: Yeah, it is a fun song. And I, I do agree with you, you know, even when his parents are like, you know, at one point, I think it was the, um, Venice episode I watched, you know, at the end, his wife, Phil's wife called, you know, the parents during this interview, you know, and there's just the funny things that happen and they roll with it, which is great. Um, but I, I liked it because of that lighthearted, um, you know, just that lighthearted, warm, thing that's happening there. Uh, and then it did cause us to investigate one of the foods that he found in Thailand, the moon. Do you remember? It's like, um, oh, what's the name of it? I want to say moon shadow, but it's not moon shadow. I don't know. It's some sort of um, moon fruit or something, but it's a fruit in Thailand that's purple and you open it up. And on the inside, it's got these little white segments. That's like the best fruit he's ever eaten in his life. Uh, and we actually found them here in France. Oh, we tried them out. They're super expensive and they are delicious. Just like he said, Steen. That's it. Mungostine. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. I just found it. Um, it the, the series started on PBS and it was called I'll have what Phil's having. Okay. And then I think it was popular. He decided that he wanted to do his own, his own or something. I don't know, but uh, got away from public television, went to Netflix and created Somebody Feed Phil. So it's like an, a derivative of that first show.
1: Okay, Cool. All right, well, there you go. There's your DocuView Deja Vu recommendations, everybody. Thank you, Josh. I can't wait to watch an American movie.
0: <laughs> I think I need to rewatch it. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, well, hey, Christian, uh, we're excited to have you coming back here in just under a week and I'm sure you'll have more stories to tell. We wanna thank everyone for listening and contributing to Patreon. We appreciate your support. And also, thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone. As a story to tell, and you can be the one to tell it.
1: Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarfreedom.com. Or support us on Patreon at patreon.com documentary documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtnacker.